0: Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler.
1: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Cloud Atlas, the new adaptation of the David Mitchell novel, directed by Lana and Andy Wachowski and Tom Tykwer. This movie was actually is divided into segments, as we'll discuss, and the different segments are, are directed by different directors. So joining me in Slate's New York studio is John Swansburg, Slate's editorial director. Fancy new title for you.
0: I uh, hope I can live up to it.
1: I'm glad that you're still willing to come in now that you're <laughs> too big for your project. I, I
0: said that I would only take the uh, take the new job if I could still do a spoiler special. So.
1: Oh, excellent. I'm glad. Glad you're here. And joining us from D.C. specifically because he wanted to call in and uh, and discuss slash defend Cloud Atlas is Dan Kois, uh, senior editor at Slate. Hi, Dan. Hi, guys. So, yes, uh, John and I saw Cloud Atlas together last night. Dan, you saw it a few days ago, I believe, I right?
2: I saw it the night before last, yes. And
1: now so. what we need to do, I, want, I need to work myself back up into the, the lather of, of <laughs> fascination with discussing Cloud Atlas that I felt at about 1230 last night. We should also start out by stating that this is a three-hour movie, very nearly three hours, two hours and, and 50 minutes. So this may be a longer spoiler special than usual given both the length of the movie and the incredibly labyrinthine uh, multiple interweaving storylines. Yeah, we
0: have six plots to spoil. We better we better get cracking.
1: Yeah, I think we better get started. But <laughs> I, I always like to do a quick round first of just general reactions. So without getting into too much detail, John, Dan, what are your what are your thoughts?
0: Um, I um, was never bored by the movie. It it cuts between those six storylines very um, rapidly and. Um, I've liked some of the stories better than others. I, I thought some were, were quite clunky. Um, I can't say I really enjoyed the movie, but I was curious about it throughout. I wanted to see where it was going to go. And when I walked out, I felt, uh, when I started thinking about it, it actually sort of made me frustrated in all sorts of ways that I hadn't really processed as I was watching it. Like It, it, it held my attention.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I would agree with that. I, I think it's a failure, but I think it's sort of a grand and somewhat at times awesome failure. At other times, a really embarrassing failure. But it's Pretty brave and ambitious that it crams all that stuff in. Yeah, Dan, what about you?
2: Uh, I guess I feel the exact opposite in that I think it is not a failure but a success, but sort of an, a hilarious and stupid one.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Okay. I can't wait to hear you Just is Isn't
2: that basically we're all saying the same thing, just in a different way? I guess maybe uh, not. Except for that I, in the end kind of love it and was happy throughout the whole thing and I don't feel I think any of the levels of frustration that you do John because I don't think the movie even requires the level of thought that you're giving it in order to get frustrated I see
1: um, Alright, so I guess we should maybe get started with spoiling We should also maybe mention, you know, we're not going to try to bring in the book too much Because this movie diverges wildly from the book And obviously the movie has to stand on its own But uh, Dan, you have finished the book, Cloud Atlas I'm in the middle of reading it, John, you have not read it at all, haven't read,
0: Haven't read page one
1: So as we try to puzzle our way through what this all means Some of us have that in our arsenal But I don't think that we should bring in the book more than necessary Because we're assuming that people are going to see the movie without having read the book I do think so far that the book is fantastic And I recommend people read it
2: so let's start with a, a macro spoiler. Macro spoiler: Humanity is doomed.
1: <laughs> but uh, is
2: it? But but eventually, we will. A, a select few of us will end up living on another planet after Earth is ruined.
1: Right, and right. so this is the story, essentially, of how humanity meets meets its end and meets its last days. Right, but as it all seen begins through,
2: right I've seen through six different stories set in six different eras from uh, the 18th century all the way to the far distant future.
1: So if you had to say, before we get into story by story, if you had to say, Dan, what this was about in a, a thumbnail sketch, what would you say? What would be your pitch meeting for Cloud Atlas?
2: Uh, well, my pitch meeting would be different than what it's about. My pitch meeting would be it's got Tom Hanks and the Wachowskis and special effects. <laughs> Go. Sold. Um, what I think it's about in the grander scheme is about the sort of vague... Who high interconnectedness of all things and people.
1: And do you think it is or is not about reincarnation? Do you think it is safe to say, because this is how I was going to start off my, my macro spoiler, that it's about the evolution of a group of souls through time as we see them reincarnated in different bodies? Or am I being too on the nose, assuming that every time you see Tom Hanks, he is the reincarnation of the previous Tom Hanks from another story?
2: I think that that is incorrect. I think it is about the evolution of one soul through history with then other characters being played by other actors for a different reason. So here's what I think. So through this movie and these six stories, in each story, there is one character who has this birthmark, this comet birthmark. Um, And uh, that is, in fact, from the book. There are are characters. There's a character in each story in the book that has this birthmark. Um, And I think that we are meant to believe that the character with the birthmark in each story is the same soul from story to story to story. So in the far, far future, that's Tom Hanks. He has that birthmark on his head. In 1973 or whatever, that's Halle Berry. She has the birthmark. Um, In 1930, whatever, it's um, Robert Forbisher, a young composer. He has the birthmark. And so I don't think that Tom Hanks in one is the same as Tom Hanks in another. I think that the only soul that carries from story to story is the person with the birthmark. I think all the other characters are played by overlapping actors and repeating actors just as sort of a a filmmaking flourish because they're the Wachowskis and they can do that. And to also sort of drive home with a gigantic hammer this notion that we are all interconnected and the effects of one generation can carry through to the next.
0: That is a very, very clear description of of what goes on in the movie. I wish I wish I'd heard that before I saw the movie because I think it would have helped me <laughs> as I was watching. I guess one if we're talking about macro issues, I think one macro issue I had is that I completely agree with you Dan that this is about that that one soul traveling across time. What I don't understand or what I didn't discern and which I and, and it keeps frustrating me is that I didn't see any progress at that, that soul made. I see how that soul stars in six different storylines that feel like six different genres of of movie and they're all have their pros and cons but like I didn't understand what I was supposed to see happening to that soul it just seemed like it was a, a you know a guy a soul with a tat, with a birthmark. You know, going through six different stories, I didn't understand what that person was learning in each of those stories, and how how it got from you know the the earliest time frame to the future where it essentially saves mankind in some some fashion.
2: Well, that's where the movie basically falls apart. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't think that that really tracks particularly well either. I don't think that I mean I don't even think it actually tracks that well in the book, honestly. Uh-huh. Um, and in the movie, I I don't get it at all. Like, I think that sort of each one of those people is fighting the same battle over and over again like this battle against some kind of tyranny often represented as like a corporate type of tyranny right and and Um, against slavery I guess right against slavery in the 1700s or uh, all the way to against an actual corporation that is um, you know raising clones by the millions and then pulping them for meat Um, but, but that's sort of a broad sweep in the specifics. No, I don't either see how that soul is evolving or changing over time. Instead, I think that that's just meant for us once again to sort of buy into the metaphysical hoo-ha of the movie or not buy into it. I don't particularly buy into it, but that doesn't mean I didn't like find it fun.
0: Yeah, that's true. I keep getting I guess I get keep Getting hung up on these philosophical questions, I shouldn't ask myself. Like I was annoyed last <laughs> night that there was that there was a sort of suggestion that there's a chosen person who has a sweet birthmark who is going to eventually, you know, the people around him will be saved from the apocalypse. But if right. you don't have that birthmark, sort of tough luck. It's kind right. of a weird. It's kind of like a. It's not a very inviting philosophy because I don't have that birthmark. I checked when I got home.
1: Well, one friend we saw with was really disgusted by the moral universe presupposed by this movie. I don't think I understood it well enough to be disgusted by it, but <laughs> but he was saying that it was a. Yeah, two Manichaean of a universe and that to have the comet birthmark is just to be the chosen one. It's actually very Matrixy. It really harks back to, you know, the Wachowskis film The Matrix in the idea that there are these faceless hordes of bad guys, which also include Hugo Weaving in this movie. In fact, <laughs> another of our Hugo jokes Weaving. afterwards is that all the Wachowskis want to do is make movies about people throughout history running away from Hugo Weaving.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I think in the end, people's response to this movie is going to... Depend on how much they resent the Wachowskis for how seriously they obviously take the metaphysical notions of this movie, right? Like they really do think that there's a real message here about humanity and uh, and the struggle against tyranny and the and the rebirth of the soul from generation to generation, which is obviously baloney. But so, if you are willing to just ignore the fact that the Wachowskis think this movie is very important with a capital V and a capital I, I think it is super enjoyable. If, as, I, as our mutual friend did after this movie, David, you, that just enrages you, you will find this movie completely enraging. Yes, I think that's true.
0: And I think, Dana, you and I are somewhere in between those two responses, that we sort of, when we, when we stopped to think about it, it annoyed us. But in the moment, the action entertained us.
1: Actually, I think the main thing that entertained me in this movie was the attempt to figure out what it meant and what was going on. I think I tried to regard it as an intellectual puzzle and challenge, and maybe that was the wrong approach, because the Wachowskis are just not going to meet me at that level.
0: Right. Well, we should talk so about which which of the which of the plots. I feel like some of the plots were much more entertaining than others.
1: Well, I'm realizing now that the ones that were directed by Tom Tyker are the were the ones that were the more respectable ones for me. So let's go through. Okay, so we start off in 1849 on this ship that's leaving, I guess, the Pacific, some island in the Pacific, right, towards San right. Francisco, right, and essentially the st- the struggle that's acted out on this ship. Dan, you want to you want to take it away?
2: Sure. Um, Adam Ewing is the sort of the hero of this. Uh, story, although he's sort of a patsy, really, for almost the entire uh, story. He is – he's a lawyer. Um, he is – he's been sent to um, take care of uh, an estate um, out on the high seas and uh, we see him at first with his father-in-law who, is, of course, is played by Hugo Weaving as a, as a bastard Um and uh and he's and the estate that he's dealing with is related in some way to slavery though this left sort of deliberately vague um, but he ends up on the ship on his way back to San Francisco uh, along with a doctor played by Tom Hanks who convinces Adam Ewing that he has a parasite, that a parasite, uh, like a tropical brain parasite, is eating him alive. And that's why he sort of feels bad.
1: Was that clear and, to you, John? I'm curious.
2: Yeah,
0: that, that, that sort of I, – I gathered that after maybe the second cut to that to that story.
1: Yeah, I think that was muddily established. But OK, go on, Dan.
2: So, um, so Tom Hanks, the doctor, Dr. Henry Goose. Um, convinces him that only he can cure him. And so he's giving him medicine, uh, which is clearly actually sort of making him feel worse and worse and worse. It's a poison or he's deliberately giving him the medicine incorrectly or whatever, but it's making things worse for him as the story goes on. And the doctor also find, or uh, excuse me, uh, the lawyer, Adam Ewing finds in his cabin, a stowaway, um, a stowaway escaped slave, uh, name, sorry, I'm, sc- I'm paging through the unbelievable Otua, Atua, wall. wasn't that his name? Atua, yes, thank you. Um, who, uh, who he helps to rescue and helps to prove to the captain is an able seaman who can help them on their journey. And in the end, uh, the doctor is about to kill Ewing for the gold in his trunk. But he's rescued at the last second by Atua, who is repaying the favor that he gave him by saving his life on the deck of the ship that day.
1: Right. And so the idea that I was trying to carry throughout the movie and that I kept puzzling over how to fit it together is that this act of kindness that Henry Ewing shows to Atua, the slave on the ship redounds throughout history, right? That the, the bad guys in this story go on to have evil karma that has to be resolved in a future life, and the good guys go on to have good karma, and that, that essentially the, uh, the scale of the liberation keeps growing and growing, right? That the liberation of this one slave turns in other lives into other acts of justice on behalf of larger groups of people. Uh, yeah, I think that's
2: that, such I, a great idea. If only that actually held.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I had a yeah I had a similar interpretation. Although it was somewhat um, colored by the fact that I could, it was it was nagging me throughout the entire movie as I was thinking about the implications of that um, act of kindness. That the whole setup of this plot is so dumb because why did Henry Goose? <laughs> Like decide that his way of murdering Adam Ewing was to give him a drop of poison for like sixty days. Like, why didn't he just kill him? Like, he's just going have give him like a lethal one lethal dose of poison. No one on that on that ship uh, full of ne'er do wells would have like looked askance if the doctor was like, "Yep, he had a parasite. He died. I'm gonna hold, I'm gonna hold on to the gold." You know, like why why did it take him you know a, an entire journey from Micronesia to the the you know the shores of San Francisco to to you know complete his act of murder? It was like totally Doctor Evil. <laughs> Am I, Did that not bother you guys? No, I, it's, t- it's totally stupid, yes. I agree. guess I didn't
1: even think it through, but yeah, it did not occur to me that he could have just easily done away with he it. He was
0: like, each day he gave him a drop of poison and like stole a different jewel. He like stole his like cool <laughs> waistcoat button one day, and then he stole his ring, you know, it's like, dude, just kill him, take the
2: stuff, that'll be that, throw the body overboard. Right. I mean, like the whole point is that you're essentially living among savages, whether you're on an island full of savages or on a ship full of savages. None of those savages give a shit if you care, if you kill this dude. Right. Anyway, so that's plot, plot number one.
1: So if that's the case, I think that then the second story, the second story chronologically speaking, is one of the more confusing ones to me. If also maybe one of the more enjoyable ones in the movie. And in this point at this point we jump forward to the nineteen thirties, the early thirties, it's the pre war days in, in Britain, correct? Are we Yeah, yeah.
0: He's in Cambridge yeah. when we first meet him.
1: And uh, and so we meet this this young man played by Ben Wishaw who's a composer who has decided to make himself the amanuensis to a much older and more famous composer played by Jim Broadbent. And it's the story of their strange kind of master-servant relationship as he lodges at the chateau of this older composer and, and starts to write down his music. And so, if we're trying to fit everything into some macrocosmic moral realm here, uh, it's Ben Wishaw who has the comet birthmark, right? right? But it seems to me that there is a different story being enacted here. There's a, there's a kind of love story, a kind of love hate story between him and the composer. There's also a love love story between this young Ben Wishaw character who's gay and his lover that he left behind in Cambridge, played by James Darcy. Is that the guy's mm-hmm. name? Yep. Played by James Darcy. And I'm not sure what the liberation plot, if any, in this story is, or exactly how this story of the, the of the two, the older and younger man, composing this beautiful piece of music together called Cloud Atlas Sextet, that will echo through the rest of the movie. I'm not sure how this is supposed to fit in with the with the moral schema that we've put in place back on this ship.
2: Yeah, well, that
0: totally I have the same doesn't.
2: Question. It totally doesn't. That's why <laughs> I feel like like to puzzling through the next five stories in this movie in an attempt to fit them into. Uh, like the template of that story is just going to leave you guys frustrated, <laughs> but this one
0: especially so, right? This one doesn't.
2: This one doesn't fit at all. In, it doesn't in a way.
1: have any kind of political ramifications. There's no. There's
2: no sort of
0: liberation of a of a subjugated person. It ends in the suicide of the Ben Wishaw character, uh, and I I could not for the life of me figure out why he killed himself. Um, other than the fact that he was like a struggling artist so that he just completed this masterwork that that well won't, won't earn him fame like is re- you know regarded throughout the rest of the time as a masterpiece. Well isn't
1: it isn't the reason provided at least in the movie that the Jim Broadbent character the older composer who now hates the younger composer because he's trying to steal his ideas or rather they're both sort of trying to steal each other's ideas and they're in a rivalry that he's going to out him for being gay which is apparently going to ruin Ben Wishaw's life isn't that the well, reason then he's, he's going to ruin
2: He's going to ruin him. No, in no, general. he doesn't
1: die. Remember the details that Jim Broadbent doesn't die. He says, yeah. "Oh, I didn't manage to kill anything more than his appetite."
2: Oh, that's right. We know. Right. I don't but know so, that we
1: see him after that, but he right. didn't die.
2: Right, but so the point of it is, I think. I mean, in each of the stories, there is some something of the time that threatens to ruin the lives, the lives, the lives of a character of a certain character. And in this case, Robert Frobisher, the, the young composer played by Ben Whishaw, he's going to be ruined by the tyranny of. Reputation in this era—that his reputation can be ruined—and in musical society, the society he cares about, that means he'll never get a job, he'll never get a commission, he'll never be able to compose anything, he won't be able to live. Um, even more so after he shoots Vivian Ayres, but even before then, this specific kind of subjugation does weigh him down. And I think in the end, we're meant to believe that's why he kills himself. There's and one other—he's created one perfect work, and he no—and he's not going to accomplish anything else because of because of what's weighing down on him and so he ends it
1: right so so in a sense that the ending to that story there is no personal liberation but there's the liberation of his art the thing that will that will outlive him but didn't it annoy you guys when they when they sit there at the piano and they have essentially this love scene I thought that was a beautiful scene let me just say that as an object I really like this story I like Ben Wishaw. I love Jim Broadbent I think he's the greatest thing in this movie especially in another story that we'll get to later but and, and, I, and I enjoyed the interaction between them, and it's just nice to see somebody sitting at a piano composing. But that moment when they're sitting together and, and they have almost this love scene, and they say, both of them say, I feel like I've known you in another life, essentially, right? Are we just supposed to throw that away? I mean, in terms of the schema of this movie, Dan, I guess you're supposed to say just don't worry about it. They just crisscrossed somewhere in the universe. I mean, or are they supposed to be reincarnations of people from a previous life? Am I being too literal-minded about this?
0: Well, I think that I, I'm thinking about it some more. I guess the way I would defend this the scene uh, if I were trying to, or this storyline if I were trying to, is that in a way it sort of offers up a surprise because another theme that is uh, that I observed across all the plot lines is that it's not just that it's about this one person with the comet, Um, birthmark it's a it's about the person with a comet birthmark finding an other sort of seeing themselves in an other who maybe they cross paths with in a former life or who sort of gets it and in all the other storylines or most of the other storylines there's a moment where two people who seemingly have no reason to appreciate one another look like lock eyes and realize that they're kindred spirits and here we have that we think we're getting that moment of like oh uh, the, you know, the elder composer and the young amanuensis are locking eyes. They are going, they're recognizing each other in the way that other characters and other storylines have. But then you find out, actually, no, in this age, it didn't work. Like, maybe these two are, are, you know, the long lost others, but because, uh, you know, homophobia was the, you know, was alive and well in, the, in that moment, it couldn't be realized. And the point, I guess, in, more globally is that there are these others, there are these connections across time, people find each other, but it doesn't always work out. Right. I don't know. Does that make that's any awesome. sense?
2: You guys who sort of didn't even like this movie are making me like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Against right. our better judgment.
1: So let's dispense with then the, the broadband story and move on to the next. So n- now are we in 1973 with Halle Berry or am I forgetting something?
2: Yeah, that's right. So, 1973, Halle Berry plays Louisa Ray, a, a reporter for a sort of glossy, trashy entertainment magazine whose father was a famous investigative reporter. Um, who stumbles upon um, the story of this uh, nuclear plant off the coast of California that um, is just opening, but scientists at the plant have known, but have had their knowledge suppressed that the plant is dangerous and could blow up. Right, and
0: she, she sort of performs some muckraking journalism with the help of Tom Hanks, uh, who plays a uh, you know nuclear scientist at the plant who sort of gives her some... Uh, important information about what's going on, and uh, she sort of—I I, think—ends up getting sort of getting the story into the paper and, and, and averting disaster. This story, I thought, was the goofiest of the stories, in large part because the plot that she uncovers is incredibly dumb. The idea, as I understood it, maybe you, I, I got it wrong, and you guys can correct me, but essentially, we find out that Big Oil is plotting to make sure that there's a core meltdown or some kind of awful disaster at this nuclear plant because they're afraid that nuclear power will replace oil as the number one fuel source for America. So they're basically big oil is plotting to create a nuclear disaster because it'll be good for oil. Which I don't think is laughable on its face.
1: It's a very Wachowskian plot, too. I mean, it does really resemble The Matrix and also V for Vendetta in its weird, fevered imagination of some giant conspiracy. And I agree; it would be it would be a much more interesting conspiracy if it was just that the nuclear plant was trying to cover up how bad their plant was, so yeah. that they can open it and make money. Why <laughs> right. does there have to be this meta narrative about about big oil kind of having a dummy plant to make nuclear power look bad? That was all absurd.
2: Yes, yeah, that's totally insane. And in fact, is is a Wachowski edition like that. So in the book. The plot is functionally what you just said, Dana. It's that the nuclear plant wants to make money and they don't want us to close, so they so they withhold this report. Whereas, yes, the Wachowskis changing it to that it's a gigantic conspiracy with oil taking over our lives is is hilarious.
1: This is, you know this plot also is the first one that we see relating back to a previous plot in that. Um, Rufus Sixsmith, who was the lover of the Ben Wishaw character, right? It's now however many years later, 40 something years later. He's an old man and he meets Halle Berry and gives her this information because he's a nuclear engineer. So he's the guy who tips her off. And in the process, she also ends up with his old letters from his lover, Ben Wishaw. And I thought that was a completely thrown away opportunity to, to sort of weave narratives together in, in some kind of interesting way. She gets the letters and she eventually gives them to his next of kin. That's essentially the trajectory of the letters. Right. And as long as we're spoiling, we should probably mention that there's a big unexpected twist here, where the Tom Hanks character, the the nuclear engineer Tom Hanks, who who helps her uh, out, the bad guys, dies in a spectacular plane crash that's attributed to the PLO.
0: Right, big oil just takes him out. It's apparently, the simplest way of taking him out was blowing up a uh, you know a, a passenger, passenger jet. jet. You're right. Jet. Actually,
1: there's not a murderer in this movie who uses Occam's razor as his <laughs> as his guiding principle. Everybody is killing everybody else the hardest way possible. Yeah. Before we move on, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, since we have so much spoiling left to go. The Spoiler Special Podcast is delighted, as always, to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They have more than 100,000 titles, which you can play on any device, including whatever you're listening to us on right now. And Audible has a special offer for spoiler listeners. Get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up here audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So the obvious book to recommend for this week is Cloud Atlas, which is available on, on Audible. It's a 19-hour audio book and it's read by a variety of different readers. I assume each one taking on a different time frame, sort of like the movie has three different directors. And I am loving reading the book right now. I know Dan really enjoyed it too, so I'm sure it's great to listen to in audiobook form as well. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try. Go to this URL, Podcast dot com slash spoiler okay back to cloud atlas a very weird thing begins the next story which is that we see tom hanks as this sort of bob hoskins-esque kind of cockney gangster really terrible accent i mean tom hanks can be great when he's playing a tom hanksy kind of role but this is a really embarrassing moment and uh and this story starts out very abruptly with this cockney gangster guy who's written a memoir a kind of crime crime fiction memoir
2: right uh, called Knuckle Sandwich. Called Knuckle
1: Sandwich, which is a great title, <laughs> as great. is his character's name, Dermot Hoggins. And so, as this seg- as this segment begins,
2: Dermot Hoggins is at a cocktail party uh, with his publisher, um, Timothy Cavendish, who's played by Jim Broadbent, and he spots a critic across the way who gave a bad review to his book, Knuckle Sandwich, um, and. He calls everyone, he gets everyone's attention at the cocktail party, and we think that Dermot Hoggins is going to make an embarrassing speech uh, that's going to demonstrate what a rube he is, but instead he picks the critic up and throws him off the balcony and kills him.
1: Yeah, and that's a very, very weird moment in which I think it happens later on, too, actually, with the uh, Hugo weaving in drag that we'll get to, but a moment when a kind of comic character suddenly dies a horribly graphic death that's completely shown, this guy's body basically exploding on the pavement as he falls, and it was really hard to, it gave, It's kicked off that story with a very, very queasy start.
2: Yeah. Was it, did you really find it queasy? Because the audience I was with laughed uproariously. At that
1: I moment. guess, I mean, I guess that's what the Wachowskis were going for, was a kind of a comic violence thing. But given that, that there are other moments in this movie where death is treated very seriously, right? I mean, it, it, like the future stories that we'll get into, it was hard for me to know how to assimilate this critic's death in that scene.
2: Well, it is true that, I mean, overall, the one of the joys of this movie should be, in theory, that each story has its own tone and, pacing and sort of atmosphere. the way Which that is remarkably story, true
1: in the book, we should say. Right, I think which the book is, totally is really great at book. shifting tones and shifting voices. And it's something that's really hard to translate from, from page to screen.
2: Right. And it, and it could. You could do it. I mean, like, so the 70s story could have been a much more blatant, like, essentially, like, Chinatown-esque, like, noir mystery. Much more than it is, which it just plays, like, sort of average movie. And uh, the only place where I really do think it works really well is in this Part this this set this section set in 2012, which was my favorite section of the movie, it, despite the, it being by far my least favorite section of the book. Um, it really plays like a broad, funny, uh, like like. It plays like – if you took like the old exotic Marigold Hotel and it was directed by Guy Ritchie. Like that is what this struck me as, like a funny old person British comedy with occasional bursts of horrific violence. I and kinda, it totally I mean, I, worked for me.
1: Essentially after – everything except for Tom Hanks throwing the guy off the, the building, I agree with you. As soon as we start to follow Jim Broadbent, who was also with this party and who was the editor of Dermot Hoggins, the, uh, the, the guy who chucks off the critic – then it's quite wonderful. But I think that really is basically just because of Jim Broadbent.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was also my favorite of the plots by far. It had me laughing out loud throughout. But the tone that you so aptly described, Dan, sort of does pick up after that that cocktail party. Like, the... the the vivid depiction of a of the you know throwing the critic off the side is not is so different than the kind of like funny scenes of old people like wrestling in a cafeteria like that's the violence that we get or like you know drunk Scotsman you know soccer players beating up uh, you know bourgeois Range Rover driving uh, British yuppies like that's the kind of level of uh, of rough and tumble that we see later in this plot and it's, so it's, it's punch a kind out of a physical action in plot in
2: his beer. <laughs> that's true. Well so, so let's let's spoil what actually happens, which is that um Jim Broadbent after um after Tom Hanks throws the guy off the balcony, but his book sales explode, of course, and Jim Broadbent is momentarily flush. Timothy Cavendish, the publisher, is momentarily flush. But then um the rest of the Hugginses show up the Hogginses show up and want their money and threaten him, threaten his life, and so he flees up to the North Country to what he believes is a safe house set up by his hateful brother. In fact, his brother has consigned him. Uh, involuntarily to a nursing home and once he signs his name to what he thinks to be the hotel entry papers he's in there for life and he can't get out and so the rest of that this story tracks his attempts at escape from this horrible nursing home from hell and it's nurse ratchet type character who is in a delightful moment played by hugo weaving
1: Right. It's, it's one of the more extreme uh, costuming moments of this movie, because as we find out in the credits, I mean, we know that Tom Hanks appears in various roles. We know that Hugo Weaving appears in various roles, but we don't know all the roles they appear in necessarily because there's so much digitization and crazy latex makeup that I don't think I'm not sure I would have known that that was Hugo Weaving in drag. And, and, and I you definitely still had that.
2: Sorry, oh sorry, go ahead, John. I
0: was, and I definitely didn't know that um, the hateful brother was played by Hugh Grant. He was covered in like fourteen pounds of makeup and was like, and looked more like James Con to me than Hugh Grant.
1: That was that was like a death mask of James Caan <laughs> with a <laughs> mysterious Michael Caine accent. All, all I could think when that guy appeared on screen was, just, "What the hell is going on with this body? What's going on behind that latex?"
0: So weird. I loved it it <laughs> well i mean i i thought this plot like i said before was totally fun I, I it was like a great little great escape kind of thing the the uh the team of uh, fellow escapees that uh, timothy cavendish puts together is great and their little plot is funny they have one sidekick who only says I know I know that's the only thing he can say which is like they played for you know laughs and then ultimately of course that guy is revealed to actually be able to speak and and does so in a, in a very important moment uh, to sort of you know seal the rescue or seal the escape um, this, and I think that this this plot also just played like a very important role in this movie uh, whether you um, like it or not, um, it was just so – such a relief to get to this plot occasionally amidst the sort of more philosophically uh, dread-inducing plots. It's just like, OK, this is like madcap. It's funny. I can laugh. You you get a little refresher and then it's like back to you know the uh, – the sort of atmosphere of the of the particularly of the future scenes that we haven't discussed yet, where it's like you know dark dystopia,
1: and it doesn't it doesn't speak that well for the movie that you're that relieved, right? <laughs> that you're finally in a story where you can just relax and enjoy yourself, right?
2: It's definitely the plot that benefits the most from the Wachowskis' different structure. You know, the novel is is structured in one way with each of the stories told in where half of each of sto- each story is told and then picked up later for the other half and in the movie it's every scene is intercut after just a minute or two and so it's more like a gigantic collage I think in the book, this story, for me, got really tiresome. I Like, that guy's voice just drove me crazy after a couple of pages. But in the movie, it it does serve, as you say, John, as a great, like, palate cleanser every time we get to it from the darker elements of the story, whether you like them or not in the other section,
1: I will reiterate, though, the Duster-Hoggins moment happens again when Hugo Weaving in drag gets her head exploded by a keg or something in the the bar fight that ends this section again. I sort of thought that that did not sit well with me. It just seemed like it came from a different gory. His head universe. exploded? Well, I mean, wasn't it implied that he died in a horrible way? I couldn't figure it
0: out. I was, oh, it was no. either that the head, like, exploded or that it was just, like, a very sort of – it was, like, a, a wooden cask made of, like, a light wood and it was, like, full
2: of watermelon juice. <laughs> oh, I thought it was full of wine. I thought it was just a cask full of wine, and they smashed it on his head, and the cask broke, and his head ended up stuck in a casket full. Okay, of Okay, I'm more with with Dan. I think it was like it was supposed to be. It, I, it did, but it did. I did have to think
0: about it. I was like, "What just happened?" And then it just like w- watching what, what happened what was going on around that scene. I was like, "Okay, this is more of like a slapstick kind of thing than like a
2: yeah." If the Wachowskis wanted you to think, or Tom Tykwer, in this case, wanted you to think that his head exploded, they would give it to you from like multiple angles
1: <laughs> in slow mo.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bullet time, head exploding.
1: So now it's time to move on to the future, right? That story takes place in 2012, but then we jump ahead to, I believe it's 21-something, right? We're in the 21st yeah. century.
0: Yeah. 22nd.
1: Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's and then hard it's to keep track something. of all the centuries. I know, I know. I can't believe we did that. And so it's 2140-something. We find ourselves in the 22nd century. Right.
0: So this one, this has sort of felt to me like kind of like a standard cinematic dystopia. It sort of looked a little bit like Blade Runner. We're in a place called New Seoul, which is adjacent to Old Seoul in Korea. Um, and Old Seoul has been essentially drowned by the rising tides, presumably a result of some kind of climate disaster. Um, and uh, New Seoul is this kind of futuristic place, very dark, a bunch of skyscrapers, lots of um, transit by by sort of sleek flying machine. And uh, it's, like I said, it's, it's dystopic in, in that there's like a ruling class um, called The Unanimity um, who sort of enforce... Unanimity. I don't know. Uh, they they kind of all look somewhat similar, and they the society seems to be powered in some way by the use of uh, fabricants, which are sort of like the replicants uh, from Blade Runner. Although I guess here they're um, they're clones, clones right? as opposed, to, clones. Uh, as opposed to androids. Um, but yeah, they're like they're cloned Asian women uh, who all look alike and are sort of created. At least at first, we think just to sort of service the. Um, the people of this future time, where you can like go to, if you're a, a consumerist, I think is what they call uh, a normal person, you can go to like a restaurant. You will be served by these uh, fabricants, and you can basically order food from them. Uh, but you can also uh, sexually harass them, grab their butts. It's sort of like going to Hooters, um, but there are no sexual harassment laws. Um, and uh, so we sort of start. We our point of entry into that world is sort of through the eyes of one of the fabricants, uh, who sort of. Learns about the kind of darker side of the world that she that she lives in,
1: right. And so her name is Sanmi. 345 or something? I can't remember what her number is, but she's a numbered clone. There are a bunch of identical hers, and also some women who look a lot like her. There's sort of the idea that everybody who's staffed in this particular fast food chain looks exactly alike, which is very confusing at the beginning of the story. But I will say that this um, this first future plot, not the, the ultimate future plot we get to, is, I think, the best art-directed and best-looking part of the movie. And if you like that speed racer part of the Wachowskis, the part of them that can design these very sleek, futuristic worlds and, and imagine all these beautiful details, I think this, this story is great at doing that.
0: Yeah, although I mean, I felt it felt all it all felt very familiar to me, either from their previous movies or other movies, it, sort of in this tone. I mean, it's fine. I didn't. It wasn't like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm I'm seeing a whole new vision of of the uh you know of the dark future of mankind. It sort of looked. I'm seeing a kind of competently put together vision of dar- the dark future of mankind as it's been imagined.
1: Right, before. as imagined by Ridley Scott. It's yeah. <laughs> amazing how influential Blade Runner still is in terms of imagining dystopias. Right, they all still sort of look that way.
2: Right. So soon, me eventually becomes the figurehead leader of a rebellion, a rebellion that already exists called Union. Um, and she is swept away from her restaurant by a leader in that union who she eventually falls in love with. He's sort of an action hero type. Um, and we hear all this later from the story that she is telling an archivist after her capture and just before her execution. And so she is conveying the story of how she learned the dark secret of New Soul, that the corpocracy that rules over New Soul, um, in, in fact, takes these fabricants, these clones, and when they reach the end of their usefulness, does not, as she had been led to believe, send them off to a brighter future, but instead um, kills them, pulps them, and turns their body into food for, right. the re- for the future fabricants.
1: Right, A revelation that was foreshadowed in a weird comic vein by the Jim Broadbent character in the earlier story about escaping from the nursing home, right? And there's a moment that he's walking by the nursing home and telling them in this goofy voice, Soylent Green is people, and quoting <laughs> <Yes>. the <laughs> end of Soylent Green, <laughs> right. which yes. he does hilariously. But it was very odd, and I thought actually kind of clever to have that taken up later in a more serious vein, yeah,
2: I like that. Right, um, and so and so she, um, Sunmi, then um, delivers an address, an inspiring revolutionary address to everyone who can receive it. In the, as as is said at the time, the twelve nations, um, and uh, and then is almost immediately afterwards captured. She gives her statement to the archivist, who appears to be very moved and surprised by the story, and and then. At the end is executed. And right. That's so the, the idea of, is that her, her rebellion
1: end. that she led failed, right? It was a failed rebellion, but it was a sort of beacon of hope for generations to come. She's
0: well, basically so Jesus. so we find out. Right? I mean, isn't that – it seemed – I felt like that was – It was. this was like the most obviously kind of Christian mythology borrowing. She's like this figure who gives a sermon on the mount that will sort of ring across time and ultimately redeem man. And she sort right. of dies for – you know, she sacrifices herself to uh, kind of seal the message uh, and ultimately, that message and its sort of adherence uh, will be kind of delivered to a new celestial world. I mean, it's right. like very yeah. it's
2: pretty baldly a kind of Christian allegory. It's true. And, Again,
1: like The Matrix, right? They, yeah. They're really into sacrifice, these guys. They yeah. love sacrifice.
2: And um, exactly like Jesus, uh, soon me will be reborn hundreds of years later as Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> In the far future, the sixth story, um, which is set on the Big Island of Hawaii, um, at a time after the fall, as it's called. How
1: do we know it's um, Hawaii? How is that established in the movie? I never got that. Well,
2: they say they call it, they say the Big Island, I think, or the Big Eye. Isn't that isn't that the first like the? But given subtitle? how the waters have been
1: raising since Neo soul days, how do we know the Big Island could be like what's left of yeah, Australia? Th- yeah,
2: or like Toledo, Ohio. Well, maybe it's Toledo, Ohio. Anyways. <laughs> Well, we also know the bad guys are called Kona and there's Hawaiian words and whatever. You know, it's obvious in the book, but it, but it, it may be totally unclear in the movie. Yes, I don't know. Um, but it is Hawaii. It's the big island of Hawaii. Um, and uh, it's after the fall. Um, and so we're now back in uh, among a primitive tribes people, basically the valley men, as they're called, one of whom is Tom Hanks. Um, and these valley men are visited every once in a while. By the by, sort of what seems to be the last remaining futuristic people who have any use of technology. They use this amazing ship that runs on fusion engines and flies across the sea. And they come to visit every once in a while. And this time, one of them stays with the valley men. And in fact, stays in Tom Hanks's house, and she's played by Halle Berry.
1: And so to me, I don't know about you guys, but to me, this was the weakest and the most embarrassing. The moments that I agreed with people like our friend David Haglund, who came out saying this thing was just an absolute piece of garbage, was in these these future, future scenes with, with Halle Berry and Tom Hanks. For one thing, I just never, ever believed either of them in these two roles. And through all the adventures they had, all I could think was, there's Halle Berry and Tom Hanks, two groomed movie stars climbing a mountain with face tattoos. Right. I I could not get into the verisimilitude of their story at all. And also, at this point, I think I could be forgiven for trying to figure out how they relate to the previous Halle Berry's and Tom Hanks's. I mean, I, I don't like this idea that... We keep seeing these reincarnations of these characters, but we're not allowed to puzzle out why they're played by the same actor throughout the ages. So I was trying to figure out, oh, is she paying back for the karma of the Halle Berry in the last story? But that was a good Halle Berry. So what does she have to pay back for? I just I could not make any sense. of you it.
0: You were way ahead of me, Dana. I was just trying to figure out what they were saying, because in this in this plot line, right. they're speaking they speak this strange... in this kind of like future Creole pigeon. That's basically English, but it sort of sounds like baby talk where like the real truth is called the true true. and like it just they. I, there were long passages where I was getting, like, every third or fourth word, but I just did not understand what they were talking about. I think I kind of started to get better at the language as the movie went on. But in the beginning, I mean, the movie opens with Tom Hanks speaking in this in this pigeon, and I just,
2: like, I didn't know what he was saying.
1: Did that bother you, Dan?
2: Uh, no, because I read the book, so I sort of knew better what they were saying. But, yes, anyone who has not read the book will have no fucking idea what they are saying, like, <laughs> 75% of the time. <laughs> That's correct. I sort of admired the
0: ballsiness uh, of the decision to do that because you easily could have, you know, just as they aren't speaking Korean in Korea, you could have Im- imagined this, you know, primitive future taking place in English and you w- it wouldn't be like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're speaking English and not some weird future, you know, bastardization of English. It would have been fine to just do it in English. So it's kind of, it's kind of ballsy to do it that well,
1: way. Well, trying to imagine the future of English is a really fascinating idea for a yeah. screenwriter to take on. But- I hope
0: it's brighter than the
2: future imagined by this film. <laughs>
1: All right, so now we're in the last sequence. So, what do we spoil about the very, very end?
2: Well, so basically, we know that I mean, huge amounts of the Earth are are uninhabitable. It seems. I mean, they describe the the, the other parts as deadlands, and it's clear that the that the prescience these these technologically advanced people are dying and looking for some place to go. And there had at one point been off world colonies. And Halle Berry's mission in coming to the Big Island is to use the observatories up on top of Mauna Kea to um, try to contact these off-world colonies. And so the sort of the center of this story is her and Tom Hanks climbing the mountain up to Mauna Kea um, to try and contact the off-world colonies to let them know that they need rescuing. We also know that in this far, far future, Soon Mi, the Jesus figure, essentially has – Become a goddess. I mean, they pray to her. They speak of her wisdom. There's huge, huge statues of her built here and there, um, and and the message that she gave out seems to have inspired people in some sort of sideways way in this far future. So that so that she has become the god that they pray to.
1: And when you mentioned early on, Dan, the kind of hoo-ha, touchy-feely philosophy of this movie, it really does find its apex in the teachings of Sun Mi. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which essentially sound like Richard Bach illusions sort of boiled down <laughs> to a haiku. Can you remember what any of her insights from her Sermon in the Mountain Oh, I are? can't
2: remember a single one of them. Are there, Were they words or were they just feelings? They
0: were like little cones. Um, oh, my favorite part, though, was that one of them was like cribbed from a moment Uh, in the Timothy Cavendish story, which was later turned into a movie that she saw a snippet of Right, like that was just an incredible, like moment of just what the fuck? I- <laughs> yeah, I guess the
1: idea is that Timothy Cavendish wrote a book about his ghastly ordeal, as he calls it, right, and that movie, that was made into a movie eventually with Tom Hanks playing <laughs> <Right>. the Timothy <laughs> playing Cavendish Timothy character. Cavendish. And there's a brief clip we see of him saying, "I will not stand for criminal abuse," which becomes one of the big rallying cries of the movement.
0: Right. So that that snippet becomes part of the Sermon on the Mount that basically saves mankind. So that's that's some serious interconnectedness right there.
1: Well, it like, shows you the power of a Tom Hanks movie. You see, we've got to be taking this movie seriously. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, we haven't even talked about the leprechaun, you guys. We have to go back throughout history and trace the uh, the evil green leprechaun who stands behind Tom Hanks' shoulder and tries to get him to do bad things. What was he doing in there, Dan?
2: Well, he's Hugo Weaving. He's, he's evil, basically, as represented throughout from era to era to era, right? So Hugo Weaving is evil when he's a slave monger, and he's evil when he's a hitman, and he's evil when he's a nurse, and he's evil when he's like the devil, basically. Old Georgie, they call him in this. He's the devil figure of this society. And Tom Hanks imagines him uh, when he becomes particularly you know, protectionist or, or distrusting of others or, or cowardly or whatever. He's the character who he sees in his head telling him to do bad things. And yes, he's played by Hugo Weaving in a top hat and bad teeth as like an evil leprechaun. So weird.
1: <laughs> to me, that that was that was another of just the egregious egregious problems. I could not I could not get with the evil Hugo weaving leprechaun.
2: Yeah, it was
0: it was bad. So, so anyway, at the I mean, at the end of this plot, essentially, I guess we've alluded to this before, but they they do succeed in making contact with an off world colony, and they somehow get themselves to that colony, right? And like the last scene, this is true spoiler. <laughs> the last scene is we see Tom Hanks and Haley Berry, who seem to have. Uh, fallen in love
1: grown old together grown
0: old together and given birth to a brood of grandchildren and Tom Hanks is sort of sitting around a campfire on you know Centauri 254
1: spinning some yarns spinning
0: some yarns about uh, you know telling the true true story about <laughs> the um, fate of mankind which apparently has perished from earth but continues on as the, as the you know happy interracial children of Halle Berry and Tom Hanks That's our, that is the, the future we have to look forward to it sounds great
2: yeah I mean you could, it could be worse I suppose Got great genes. I mean, those climate (laughs) seems nice. They got two (laughs) moons there instead of just one. It's true. It's great. So I mean, so obviously there's a huge level of absurdity at play in this movie, and it to me again, it it sort of seems like you you can either embrace the absurdity or be offended by it. And and even in that last section, which is like in many cases patently absurd, I still really enjoyed this movie. I still found that fun and interesting. And and I like, as I always end up liking with movies like this, I like the total insane ballsiness it requires to think, if you're the Wachowskis and Tom Tykwer, that you are qualified to make a movie this insane and crazy and philosophically like portentous. And I love this kind of hubris on a movie screen. It makes me happy that we have an art form that accommodates something this outlandishly, cartoonishly large and insane and dumb.
1: I have to say the largeness and insanity is not my reason for warning people against this movie. And I don't warn everyone against it. I think if anybody who heard the foregoing and is still with us (laughs) and is still curious about how it all unfolds, go ahead. Take three hours of your life and, and check it out. But I do fault this movie to some extent for its moral vision. I think in this big metaphysical, huge, wide net that it's casting, it's trying to ask a lot of questions about how do we live, how do we behave, what is an act of kindness, what is an act of evil. And I think this, those questions either don't get answered and remain extremely muddled, or sometimes they get answered in a really disturbing way that I think is wrong. And I hope that that isn't that isn't the the soon me lesson that people take away from. Like the, what? From the like movie. what
2: do you like? So obviously you agree that slavery is bad. Well, for I know that one thing that we discussed
0: last night is that the chieftain, right, right after Tom Hanks sort of at the end at the in the last plot, um, Tom Hanks has sort of had a series of revelatory moments. um, And but when he returns to uh, his village and finds it uh, kind of burned and looted by these awful cannibalistic horse riding people who still roam Hawaii's Big Island, um, he finds like a sleeping marauder. And he like instantly wants to kill him. He pulls out his knife. He he momentarily stops. You you sort of think he's going to stay his hand because he sort of understands the true true and knows that like has sort of had a vision for like what you know how mankind works. But instead, he pauses and then cuts the guy's throat. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the message was there. It was like I thought that that at that point the Hank's character was this sort of like lofty um, guy who'd sort of had some low moments in his past. But he had,
1: had just rejected the teachings of the evil leprechaun. Right. Exactly. By yeah. not killing Halle Berry when the Leprechaun was telling him. To. <laughs> right,
0: but instead he goes and like you know take vengeance kills this marauder, and not in like uh, any kind of self defense way. This guy's like sleeping, and uh, I mean, I just it just struck me as a weird moment. I mean, maybe you could argue that hey, it adds some kind of moral complexity, but it was just not not expected, and it almost it almost seemed to condone that kind
1: of that kind of murder. Yeah, I feel like I mean I haven't thought through it. I haven't thought thought through the whole movie enough to mount an argument about it, but I can really see Hagelin's argument that in a way, this is a movie about: Hey, if you, if you got a birthmark, you're set. If not, you're evil, and you get to die throughout history.
2: Yeah. Well, we all die throughout history, Dana.
1: <laughs> but I mean, die it's in just a bad the way it's if if, be. die at the hands of you know of Tom Hanks's knife or thrown off a balcony by Dermot Hoggins. I just I, I think that there's there's a there's a, a glee in violent death to to the bad guy in this movie that sort of undercuts its moral vision.
2: Yeah, that's Hollywood, I guess. I mean and, – and you're right. It's, in general, you're always going to have trouble when you are trying to seriously explore actual issues of good and evil in the context of a big science fiction thriller where people shoot guns at each other while standing on bridges over chasms of skyscrapers, etc. cetera. <laughs> like that's always going to be at some level completely absurd and potentially – uh, message da- dangerous, you know? But at the same time, I mean, whatever. I can't. I have no particular defense of him cutting um, uh, evil cannibal Hugh Grant's throat. But um, I do, in general, feel like uh, this movie is best enjoyed uh, while completely ignoring the fact that the Wachowskis think they know what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think that is very. Very sound advice to anyone who's contemplating going to this movie.
2: And you're right, Dana. That in, that that is in on many levels maddening. Like that, that's a frustrating way to watch a movie, especially when there, the opportunity does exist to explore these questions in a really interesting, compelling way. And the movie completely drops the ball on that. But uh, but I, I guess in the end, I was willing to forgive that because. I don't know why, because I'm a forgiving kind of guy, I guess. I, I guess you'll be, you'll t- be reincarnated through history. Me Wait, me. do you have
1: a comet birthmark?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming in for this epic spoiler. And you too, John. It was, it was mind-boggling. Thanks, <laughs> I, guys. I
0: agree. Thank you.
1: Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?